I'm Fathery. This is Dave. I'm Aaron. And this is Text Trek. Engage. Welcome back aboard the Starship Texas for the 216th installment of the Text Trek podcast, the home of Star Trek fandom from deep in the heart of Texas, where we take a deep look at Star Trek old and new. And tonight we are talking about Star Trek Prodigy Season 1, Episode 13, All the World's a Stage, written by Aaron J. Walkie, who is, here's a surprise, I think he actually has just uh, beamed in. He's actually oh. uh, here. On board, uh, Aaron Walkia. Yeah. How the hell are you? I'm good. Can you hear and see me okay? This yes, is, uh... yeah. I think we can hear and see you great. So uh, okay, thank great. you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Well, live, live logs improper, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, already in our uh, out in our audience, people have uh, are throwing that one out there. <laughs> that, that's going to be around for a while, I think. I oh, think man. you've uh, you, if... <laughs> you you've started something, Aaron. If that's if I don't see name... that on a t-shirt. If that's my main <laughs> contribution to the Trekiverse's meme generation, then I'll die happy. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think it's going to stick around a while. So it's uh, you know one of one of those things. But yeah, thank thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm I'm really excited to talk about this episode with you. And if anyone in our live audience has any uh, questions for Aaron, please by all means sound off and let us know. But uh, yeah, this is going to be a, a real real treat. We've we've talked to some Star Trek writers before, but they've mm-hmm. They've always been dudes on the the older shows, the legacy shows, I guess is like the proper branding terminology now. So it's cool to talk to, uh, uh, I guess, one of the one of the young writers. Is that like the is that the appropriate way I, to say I, it? I'm the, I'm the hip, new, almost 40 year old writer. <laughs> Someone is just asking in the background, what is that instrument uh, that you are playing? Oh, I, you... yes. Well, I am an eccentric, if nothing else. And that is, in fact, a. A hurdy gurdy, which is a medieval instrument uh, that is yes. both a bowstring that you play with a crank, and then there's a keyboard on it. It is woefully out of tune, so I won't subject you <laughs> to the horrible noises it will make I'm, if I try to play it right now. I'm very familiar. I listen to a lot of folk metal, so oh I, yeah, so there I've, you go. I've heard a lot of those. It's very drony and cool and strange. Mm. Look it up on YouTube. I recommend it. Absolutely. Well, uh, before we we dive into this episode with with Aaron. And Aaron, we have Aaron Walkie and Aaron Harvey. So we just need Dr. Aaron McDonald and her husband Aaron to show <laughs> up. Aaron, here. I know. Uh, should I text them? Maybe, maybe they can yeah. come on. <laughs> hey, what, what are y'all doing? Uh, <laughs> I knew them before, like it was Star Trek. Even like we we would hang out at our improv show. So it was like we were the triumvirate of Aaron's, so, like, the three of us. <laughs> Admission Seattle. Yeah, I want to see if I yeah. get like all four of y'all together in like one picture. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> the universe would implode. We'd melt like in Time Cop if we touch. 
<laughs> but yeah, I think we're gonna have a lot of fun getting into this episode. Uh, before we do, just want to give a quick shout out to the director Andrew L. Schmidt, and uh, also a thank you to all the Text Trek patrons out there, everyone who helps us out on Patreon. Uh, Starfleet Boy, Kick is Eternal, Gay Clevin, Lundstrom, Crazy Dutchie, Joanne Robertson, Quarksbar, John Dawes, and our anonymous supporters. Thank you all so much. I, I lied to y'all last week. I said that we're gonna do the Patreon watch along on November. I think I said. 15th we're actually doing it on the 19th so that's like next saturday we're gonna be watching the discovery episode forget me not so yeah if you want to join in on that just go ahead and sign up for the text track patreon at whatever tier you want to help us out at but aaron there's a thing we like to do whenever we have a new guest appear on the show for the first time and that is just kind of ask you your relationship with star trek you know before you I had a, a job on an actual Star Trek show. Just kind of how did you first enter the the fandom? And you know, what was kind of like your first encounter, your first contact with Star Trek? Well, sure. I'll, I'll phrase this the way I phrased it for Kate Mulgrew, who made fun of me deeply for it, which is my first <laughs> grace with sentience uh, was one <laughs> Star Trek. Um, and it, it basically one of my earliest memories as a human being uh, was uh, sitting on the couch with my dad, um, and I didn't know why it was exciting, but it was it was palpable. There was an energy in the air, and I was watching the, uh, the secondary hull separate from the saucer, and there was the fanfare playing, and I realized that I was watching the world premiere of Star Trek The Next Generation way back in mm -hmm. September of 1987 with my dad. And, you know, it was very exciting. I didn't know why. Uh, and but he, I was clearly feeding off my dad's vibes because he mm -hmm. was very, a very old school TOS fan, and you know um, the, it be, it just kind of became something we bonded over. You know, he I remember one of the first action movies, some of the first action movies I ever got to go see when I was younger were Star Trek movies that I saw with my dad, and um, you know he. I remember every year when I didn't know what to get him as a toy or, or a Christmas present, uh, I would just get him like a Star Trek toy. Like he had this communicator badge, which, oh, I actually have it right here. He sent it to me after I mentioned it. It was one of these communicator badges. Oh, that thing, it's like, huge. Yeah, it's like an inch thick and it makes the wrong noise and it lights up. <laughs> but oh, nice. it's a Christmas tree ornament. I, it feels like it should be a Christmas tree ornament, but <laughs> you actually would like pin it to your chest. But yeah, so that was my introduction to Star Trek, and you know, I, I I absorbed it by osmosis, which I think there is a certain level of Trek fan that just kind of like it. Oh, it was always there, you know. Um, and I, TOS, which is obviously quite relevant for today's episode, um, you know, I TNG was my gateway. But then uh, over the summers, both my parents worked, so sometimes they would drop me off at my aunt's house, and you know, she had. You know stuff to do so she would just plop me in front of the tv and for some reason our local pbs station on like saturday uh, like weekday afternoons during the summer would air tos back to back and so i got to see so many things i probably shouldn't have seen when i was like five or six you know like uh cali feed death battles and <laughs> dancing women, <Orion> women. <laughs> but also you know uh, amazing episodes like a piece of the action and things that just like as a ki kid i didn't have the words to articulate it but it was just sort of like wait how are they going to a planet and they're all gangsters they have to explain this somehow <laughs> and, and they do kind of <laughs> and, and, but that was to me that was always sort of star trek was 
take a very bold swing with a completely, uh, as my friend Tilly Bridges would say, a bonkers premise, and and then just find a way to scientifically deduce from there. Kids have to learn about Ioceans at some point. Yes. <laughs> Talk to your kids about Ioceans. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that seems very appropriate, though. There's definitely, I felt like, um, you know, a familial streak threading through the the very episode we'll be talking about tonight. So it, it certainly makes sense that uh, that uh, it was an early bonding thing with your dad. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's really cool, and that also must be weird for you know someone who was watching Star Trek in the 80s and 90s and and saw you know voyager when it came out and now like you actually get to like write dialogue for Catherine janeway to say and that's uh that's crazy but that must be really awesome it, it is i mean it was sort of doubly crazy just because uh my my family my dad's side of the family is from bloomington indiana and so oh, wow. and, and i and i lived in bloomington for many years uh went to college there um you know jerry ryan or sorry jerry taylor was obviously a an alumnus there she donated all of her personal effects from star trek to what's called the uh the lily library which is like a, a rare manuscript library they have like the gutenberg bible but they now they also have uh like Jerry Taylor's hand annotated notes from TNG and Voyager, which I got to read. Like you, if you're a student, you can check them out. And so I got to learn how to write screenplays from reading her scripts. And, uh, you know, also we had Lee Sheldon was a, who was a TNG writer. Um, he was a professor there at the time. So there was like, there was like something in the air that felt like <laughs> I, I was destined for like, at least to give it a shot. And, but, you know, 2005 there, there wasn't really like it, i graduated in 2006 the year after enterprise got canceled mm -hmm. and so everybody was just like well we star trek had a good run you know you know and uh i'm so grateful that there's to be part of this kind of third wave of star trek of this renaissance where you know we get to uh, celebrate it and i i get to be a small part of it uh, you know in this truly wild and weird and wonderful world we all love it Sure. Yeah. We're close to the same age. And I remember that in 2005 when, you know, I was a baby when TNG started and then, you know, Enterprise got canceled. And I was like, wow, like this is pot. Like you can do this. You can just like not have new Star Trek. Like what's going on here? <laughs> it was, so, I didn't understand it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, but it's, but what's the next series? That was basically right, right. the reaction. So th now that it's like when Doctor Who went off the air. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. But now that we have all this new shows in production at the same time and have, you know, 50 episodes coming out every year, it's like, no, this is like normal. Like I, I grew up when like DS9 and Voyager were both on. Like I, I'm used to getting like this much Star Trek a year. So, so yeah, like we, we've returned to normalcy for me in, in at least <laughs> yeah. one aspect of life. <laughs> we, There's we a lot of variety it. now because we get maybe about the same amount of episodes, but they're all just spread out over different series and stuff too, which is great. Yeah. Which, which has been also kind of interesting because, you know, uh, that one of the, the great conundrums I feel like uh, that the Berman era was always wrestling with was sort of like franchise burnout, right? And I think, mm -hmm. you know, having DS9, like they tried to kind of overlap it so you, you'd only have maybe two shows on, on at the same time. But there was, a, I think, at least one point, or at least uh, in like the 2370s in the Star Trek timeline where you had three shows set at the same time and it became quite unmanageable and the movies that they were writing 
and it was a lot uh, to, to juggle. So, and I feel like it was a little harder because all of those shows, while they did have kind of like their own flavor, you know, I would say Voyager and TNG were closer to, to uh, each other than say Picard and our show, you know, they, they're very different stories that are being told. For sure. Well, speaking of your show, I, I do want to talk about uh, this week's episode, uh, but I just want to, you know, kind of give some, some quick thoughts and then I'll, I'll see what, what Dave and Aaron Harvey think about it, but you know, Tell me what you really think <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll shoot straight with you, but we'll wait until you're live on the air to tell you what we actually think. <laughs> but no, I thought that, like the, the cool thing of this episode and the cool thing of prodigy in general is that it is a very great gateway drug into star Trek. If you are a young audience that is unfamiliar with the other shows, I said last week, uh, you know, when we were dealing with the Borg, I felt that the beauty of that episode was after a 25 minute story, uh, a young kid who's never watched Star Trek before Prodigy would basically have an understanding of everything about the Borg, you know, the way they assimilate, the way that everyone is terrified of them, the like catchphrase, you know, resistance is futile, all that stuff was all that was like packed in there. So that was really cool. And I think this episode kind of addresses the original series and not just like its place as, you know, a foundational show that's inspired this 56 year long franchise, but also just kind of the, the role it kind of has in, in pop culture. And, and yeah, you know, it was, it was older, it was like a little bit of a different style, but you know, it's still cool and people like to, you know, dress up and cosplay and there's people who do like bad William Shatner <laughs> impressions, but you know, that's, that's kind of a pop cultural icon and, yeah, like if you're trying to explore the Star Trek universe for the first time, I think, yeah, you do need to have like an understanding of, of the original series. And I thought this was a way that made that very accessible. And it's also just a treat for, you know, those of us who grew up with those characters and those stories. Just, you know, oh, this is so cool. You know, we get to oh, find out what happened to this one random character who appeared in one episode. And, you know, we get to see like these these beautiful consoles recreated and, and uh, great HD CGI and, you know, stuff like that. But Dave, what, uh, what about you? What was kind of your general impression of this episode? Um, sure, sure. Uh, so, yeah, I had a really good time with it. I'm uh, going to bring up something outside of Trek fandom because uh, not to uh, not to in any way diminish it, but because it's a beloved property, Galaxy Quest. Mm -hmm. it, uh, uh, the, that combination of sort of humor and heart and uh, some meta commentary uh, resonated with me. And for all the reasons, I think Galaxy Quest, Once Upon a Time, uh, resonated with uh, with Trek fandom, you know, to the point where it's even now very often mentioned when people list their favorite Trek movies. Uh, um, and this this had a, a different spin on it. It was, of course, uh, uh, but it, but it, I liked uh, how the episode used the fandom to uh, address like uh, oh, uh, what do you call it, uh, imposter syndrome. Uh, I liked seeing uh, the red shirts get their get their day, which is absolutely they were due. Um, and I like stuff with like a play within a play, it, you know, that's a very Shakespearean reference, the title of the episode, uh, all the world's a stage is a Shakespearean reference. So a play within a show, uh, within a TV show was, uh, was very much up my alley. I, I really enjoyed the mixture of comedy and heart in it though, is the, is the short version of it. Um, although, uh, seeing Murph sick was, uh, even if he's just going through a metamorphosis was also heartbreaking. And so we'll have to talk about that and address that very serious problem. Cool. Well, uh, Aaron H, uh, what are your thoughts on this? By the episode? time we get to me, it's like the, everything's been said. <laughs> <laughs> like, How'd no, you feel about I, the I, credits, Aaron? 
<laughs> <You're right. laughs> well, the the typeface. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I. It's funny when I first watched this, I actually I was basically live tweeting to Aaron. I didn't plan on doing that, and then I was just like, I just kept doing it. But um, no, I. It, there was something about it that's just. It's a show that I felt like I really needed right now, just because it was so positive, um, and uh, just the. Like you said, the meta commentary of sort of everyone going around in Starfleet uniforms. I'm like, hmm, that sounds familiar. Um, and just <laughs> yeah, the idea that you can do good without a spaceship, but also that that can be applied to today. That you can, you don't have to be in Starfleet to hold those ideals. And it's just, you know, I, I there were times where I teared up where I'm just like, okay, <laughs> like it was just, especially like, and just the the little callbacks when when. Um, Uhura, Uhura, it's like you say her name basically. Um, I think it was said Hoorah Pulse Power or something Hoorah, like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I kind of invented a, a naming convention of how the, this alien race names people. It's sort of like a you know two consonants: Hura, James T, Scott E. <laughs> yeah, sort of fancy naming type yeah. conventions a little bit. Yeah, yeah, drawn at least from that. Yeah. T Pole, but in reverse. Oh yeah. So when she, you know, said pulse power and sort of impulse power, there's just something about that was just, it was so sweet and just like, I don't know, it just, it really got me. And seeing Dal basically stepping up and now, you know, like give them a chance. He's sort of like, he's, he's really growing as a character. And I, I over the last couple of weeks, I've really enjoyed seeing him step up. Well, even in the episode, he went from uh, early on a, a little bit of a, these guys don't realize what they're doing. They're just they're just playing pretend, and we're just like them, and mm -hmm. we all kind of suck. Uh, to let's give them a chance, like you said. Uh, right. So so that was a neat arc within the episode. Obviously, following his broader arc within the whole series. I love when he shot up after being sick. And it's like I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> that was fantastic. Me neither, kid. So, Me neither. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So that uh, no. I overall, I just I. I don't have a lot of comments about what I like. There's nothing I would change for sure. Well, I want to talk with Aaron about the stuff on the, the dauntless at the very beginning. You know, a, a lot of people, I'm sure you've seen the reactions, but a lot of people are really excited to kind of check in with Admiral Janeway every week. And I, I know a lot of people out there are like, we want more dauntless. We want more Admiral Janeway. We want to spend more time with this crew. We you know we typically so far, like these new episodes coming out, I guess there's there's typically like two scenes on the Dauntless. Like this week, there is only one. So like I'm like, oh, like I need my I need my Dauntless fix. <laughs> I need to see what happens next. But yeah, I, I think one of the big draws of the show is you know Janeway coming after these kids and how you know we understand where she's coming from, but she's kind it's kind of scary. You know, someone like that is like mad at you or coming after you. So I'm I'm really looking forward to the moment they've, when they've when made they cross mom. Paths. They've made mom mad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think just, uh, I guess I can talk about, I don't want to interrupt the flow of your show, but uh, I can talk a little bit about sort of the thrust of, of the Janeway storyline of, you know, because we were like, we talked about a lot in these next 10 episodes of like, especially in Star Trek, but in, in any good show, an antagonist doesn't have to be a bad person. It can just be someone whose motives conflict with yours. And sure. Two, two, um, uh, two reference points that we kind of came to, you know, and ironically, they're both sort of, you know, one's a legal thriller, but one's a submarine movie, appropriately enough, which, of course, uh, so much of Star Trek is built around Navy and submarine combat, uh, where, where the fugitive, 
you know, where you, Tommy Lee Jones is just doing his job, you know, Harrison Ford is trying to get away. You're kind of rooting for both of them in a way, but then in the end, you're kind of hoping they figure it out. Um, and then the other one was hunt, that I referenced a lot in terms of structure, which I think is almost more appropriate, was the hunt for Red October, which is, you know, you, you're uh, from Janeway's perspective, especially she's just following this craft at first they think it's a, you know essentially a soviet nuclear submarine that might be coming to america to bomb us uh and then uh, over the course of it you're, you're going to see the facts trickle in and then you have that tension of what do i do with this information but we had to start by stacking the deck against our crew a little bit and really mm -hmm. build a case of why you know based on the limited information she has she now has potentially two eyewitnesses of destroyed space station and somebody that may or may not say, hey, uh, they pretended to be Starfleet refugees just long enough to blow up this station and then kid possibly kidnap the captain of the protostar. <laughs> like it's it's not looking good for them right now. Yeah, she even has the line of dialogue in this episode. Uh, this is no longer a rescue mission; it's a manhunt or, or something along those lines, right? So yeah, this is a little little hint of Equinox Janeway of. I, I, this is reprehensible to her that someone would use a, a, a starship uh, in the Federation mm. for conquest or for personal gain or to kill people. Like that's that's the opposite of what Starfleet represents. She's going to call for a hard target search, Tommy Lee Jones style. <laughs> <laughs> the whole idea of, of having you know the two conflicting ideas being that's the conflict is so star trek too it's just mm -hmm. it's not you know we have to destroy this person because they're evil there's no like bipolar not bipolar but you know um it's it's i don't know it just it feels very very much to the heart of what star trek is right right it has that that star trek nuance it's not as not as black and white yeah yeah it well it's it's the hegelian dialectic to get philosophical uh, uh which is you know you have the the thesis and then the antithesis but then ultimately the the truth lies in the synthesis of the two. And so that's kind of what we're doing for with this season. <laughs> it's just we're just referencing Hegel. <laughs> uh, we're getting just deep now. That's, the kids that's love. Deep. You know, kids love <laughs> Hegel. I like Murph. <laughs> <laughs> that needs to be a shirt. Kids love Hegel. No. <laughs> they they love Murph though. That's who they really yes. love. Like uh, Aaron, you were there at a at Mission Chicago. I, I I saw you there, but uh, remember how like every little kid when asked about Prodigy, they're all like, "Oh my God, I love Murph so much." <laughs> yeah, and that's you know by design and intent, <laughs> it worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, them. mission accomplished there. <laughs> and as a as a coffee fiend like Janeway, I'm like I'm literally drinking a cold brew coffee now at seven thirty at night. Uh, I am glad that she was allowed to have coffee again in this episode. She only has to switch to tea, I guess, sometimes. But Yeah, well, it might be decaf. She's Part of the reason why she's on edge, too, I think, is that she's had to reduce her caffeine consumption. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I would murder Dr. Noam if he, if he cut me off. <laughs> well, who knows? Maybe it was the doctor who gave her that order before. It was like, you could go find Chakotay, but you need to cut back on your caffeine. <laughs> is that what the diviner is drinking when you know we see him holding a, a cup in in sick <laughs> bay when they're questioning him like does she give him coffee like here this will this will uh help you water out. isn't it i think it's water in the, <laughs> in the script in the script it was coffee she was <laughs> that was like so came him just like wake up a little bit uh but uh i think ultimately they decided to get for the reflection and to have that kind of 
cool moment and work better if it was that's it we find out that caffeine is poisonous to their people and that's what (laughs) like (laughs) destroyed their society is coffee oh yeah the photo star gave them caffeine (laughs) father you were uh, putting yourself putting yourself in janeway shoes and imagining enjoying coffee by proxy Yeah, I'm. I'm very curious to see where this is going to go with the uh, with the diviner on the Dauntless. So obviously, Aaron, uh, you know, and have to keep it all a secret. But yeah, g- good job. Uh, you know, giving us a little bit of, I guess not not stringing us along, but just uh, you know, trickling enough information out slowly that we're we're hooked and want to keep coming back. Yeah, well, that's one it's... thing that I think Prodigy's done very well. Yeah, it's slow, but it's not too slow because they're right. trying to just. I, I remember thinking how the first episode could have gone. I was like, oh, we actually advanced quite a bit. And there was assumptions that they people made smartly, which was nice compared to sometimes how television shows make characters feel stupid just so they can stretch something out or whatever, instead of just writing differently. Yeah, I, I think that there's, um, you know, there's obviously different ways you can write stories. Um, and sometimes you would stretch out a mystery mystery really long. Sometimes you would have something that the audience knows that the characters don't, that sort of Hitchcockian bomb of an under the table sort of suspense sort of thing. But you don't want, typically you don't want that to go on too long because then you start to get impatient. So yeah. that was kind of our thinking coming back is like we, none of us were terribly interested in having Gwen not have lost all her memories and then and then the whole season is her regaining the things that the audience already knows. We kind of wanted yeah. to push that football forward. Yeah, that, that was actually one of my fears going into that. So I was, I was relieved when the episode 11 ended with zero. I remember everything. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think some people were surprised by that, but good. You mm-hmm. know. <laughs> well, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about like the the situation the proto star is in now, where they're not able to go to the Federation but they're still wanting to do good, do the Starfleet missions. I guess they were just going in like response to this distress call, but are they, are they still like trying to move like towards the Federation? Or are they going in the opposite direction? Just trying to figure out like, where are they in the galaxy or where, where are they headed? Like what direction? So if you're looking at a galactic map, uh, which we used the uh, stellar cartography that was the most recent one that was edited by the amazing Larry Nemechek, mm-hmm. um, uh, so if you look at the, the galactic map, there's a there's sort of a stretch where the Federation borders kind of peek into the Beta Quadrant and kind of wrap around uh, the Romulan neutral zone. And so we, if you just look at that map, they basically are right at the basically the furthest. They, episode 11 was they were right at the furthest most edge, which is sort of like north of the top of the Romulan neutral zone, but south of uh, the Delta Quadrant. And so yeah. basically, as soon as they found out, like, oh, we can't go to Federation right now because we're <laughs> going to blow them up, uh, they're they're kind of edging away, trying to reassess and figure out what where they can go next. So they're kind of tooling around the, the, the Beta Quadrant right now. Okay, so very close to the Romulan st- Star Empire. Indeed. Uh, would, is there any way that you could give us a, a hint or a tease? Or, you know, is it possible they might, like, come across some Romulans in the near future? If, if you can't I, see anything, that's fine. I will say, indeed, they will come across some Romulans. Uh, wow. That's awesome. Okay, y'all heard it They'll here first. around the bush. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
By the way, Father, I just want to uh, interrupt for just a second to say the still frame you've got up showing the protostar in orbit around this planet. Uh, I just thought that was a particularly beautiful image. Uh, you know, the animators did a really spectacular job in this episode as it was drifting around in orbit. Uh, their colors are kind of similar. It's an icy blue and um, and white. Uh, but uh, I just yeah, I just thought it was a particularly particularly cool orbital shot. And what I like is it shows how deep some of these places are. So the uh, shuttlecraft falling and falling and falling <laughs> actually yeah. feels believable that it, you know you <laughs> yeah. have time to to fly in there and get them at that time. So yeah, yeah. the uh, the it's the planet is almost like made up of a bunch of giant uh, like uh, Olympus Mons Grand Canyon pits. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I, our our art design team and and visual development team is astonishing they they assembled an all-star team from around the world literally people from every corner of the earth uh that were met benny bonds in very impressive standards and they just kept out delivering every time a lot of them came from video games too because uh, you know the video game artwork is really good these days <laughs> Yeah, and character design is yeah. such a such a big part of that, which I'm sure we'll talk about as we continue through the episode. It's got to be a particularly uh, a particular kind of pleasure, separate from live action, to see see your script realized in you know animated designs. Oh, absolutely! It's uh, it's as close to magic I think as I experience every time. Well, a lot of us are really concerned about sick Murph. So I know that we're getting the the metamorphosis is what everyone's calling it online. <laughs> but yeah, I'm um, I'm a little worried. I'm like, oh, he's so cute and lovable now. Like, uh, what, what what's going to happen to my Murph? Yeah, um, you know, uh, it heart it broke my heart writing this scene because basically we you know talking with the Hagemans, we were trying to figure out like what's the what's the angle, and we we're like, you know, it's how do you feel when you have a sick pet and you don't know mm. what to do? It's awful, and all you can do is just kind of like trust the process and hope they get better and keep them comfortable. And, and that's kind of what this scene was meant to do. Uh, I'm sorry for making people sad, but it is unfortunately <laughs> my job to make you feel things. Yes. So, no, that has a little bit of like a feeling of yesteryear in some ways, but with yeah. a more positive outcome. <laughs> yes. Uh, yesterday we did watch yesteryear in the, in the writer's room at one point oh, nice. and like uh, to rewatch it, I should say. And I was like, wow, this is, they just pulled zero punches. In this. Yeah. And, you know, Janeway is there uh, as, as the voice, uh, the mom-like voice who's saying, hey, I think I think Murph is probably just going through something. So beyond the the basic emotional tug of seeing any animal not feeling well, uh, there there is a little bit of voice of uh, clarity there, too. I had never Apparently thought of they... this before, but but she's an experienced pet owner. You know, the real Janeway had had a dog. So I'm sure that kind of got programmed in the hollow Janeway yeah. on some level. Yeah, I I mean I'll I'll confirm that here first that she does in fact have plenty of memories about Molly the Irish setter. Oh, and I'm not just saying that you'll see that's canon. <laughs> cool, something else to look forward to. <laughs> so we, is the uh, melanoid slime data not in the protostar basically? So they couldn't they be able to look up what happens. Well, I uh, I mean I could get into that. I was going to save that for a tweet thread once we get. Okay. Nope. Yep. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. <laughs> but uh, let's just say that they are you've thought uh, about it but it they are mysterious species that are, are not they're just sort of both, okay. sort of like how this is real by the way in real science for uh, even now until about like five years ago we didn't know where eels came from <laughs> like we just like they just were huh. like we don't know where they spawn we don't know what baby eels look like they just didn't know 
until wow. they found like one riverbed somewhere in, in Europe, I think. Huh. Um, and so I, for the melanoid slime worm, we were sort of like, I think it's okay. just sort of like they, they've seen them around, but they don't fully know everything about them yet. Hmm. I actually kind of like that, that even in a uh, rather knowledgeable future that like uh, Star Trek depicts, you, some, yeah. some, certainly some mysteries are good and drive the, uh, drive the excitement. Yeah. Well, that, why else would you go out and explore and seek that new horizon? Well, uh, let's talk about this planet a little bit that they they beam down to. Uh, you said you had a lot of fun, you know, creating the the names of some of these characters, uh, James T. Inson, <laughs> all of that. But I've seen you talk on social media a little bit about how the proposed sequel to a piece of the action was going to be something DS9 wanted to do for the 30th anniversary. Instead, they did Trials and Tribulations, which... It's possibly my favorite episode of Star Trek ever. But yeah. uh, there was an idea where they were like, oh, what if we go back to the Aotians, but they've just copied Starfleet after meeting Kirk and Spock. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, uh, believe it or not, that was a happy accident. And that like, I had maybe read about that in the millions of troves of pages of Star Trek lore <laughs> that I read in my spare time because I'm crazy. Uh, but like, um, but uh, I I had completely forgotten about that. And we, the way we arrived at this was one of our staff writers, Yander Pendleton Thompson, who's a phenomenal writer. Um, you know, as we were she, kind she of, wrote last week's episode, right? She did, yes. And she also wrote uh, First Contact. Um, <laughs> and uh, she was a formerly a writer's assistant on Picard. And uh, we were we were her first uh, TV writing gig, and she's been wonderful. Um, but uh, so we, uh, we occasionally have these sort of uh, brainstorming sessions just to kind of keep it fresh because, you know, the last thing we want to do is just sort of like at the beginning of a season, just plan out all 20 episodes to the point where there's no discovery and no pleasant surprises and no creativity. So we had some sort of placeholder sections for like, oh, this could be an episode that tackles this part of their arc, but we haven't figured out what the theme of it is quite yet. And then, uh, so we had this blue sky period where, where we all just kind of wrote down a bunch of sort of log lines or story prompts, you know, not even fully fleshed out, just kind of like half ideas. And Deandra, she comes from a theatrical background and she just came in and said like, all the world's a stage. And then she's like, what if we just went to a planet and everybody there was just mysteriously acting out captain's logs. And that's all she had. And we were just sort of like, and, and I was like, well, first of all, the Shakespeare quote makes me think TOS. Like that, that's, you know, that is a, a, a Star Trek title if I've ever heard one. Um, but then uh, I, it sort of opened up this, got my gears grinding of like, well, how would that work? Are they mind controlled? What did they pick up subspace transmissions a la contact? Uh, and then, you know, eventually we're like, actually it might be a little cleaner if there's just someone who made first contact because, uh, uh, you know, in this pile of half ideas, we also had a pile of Star Trek concepts that we wanted to visit at some point. And one of them was cultural contamination episode, which obviously mm. is more common in the TOS era than it is in other other series. But it was, but it stuck with me because that was what some of the episodes that enthralled me the most when I was at my aunt's house. So I was like, I want to do a cultural contamination episode. Um, this kind of reminds me a little bit of Muse as well. Yes, exactly. There's a little bit of Voyager uh, Muse. There's a little bit of the Royale. There's a little bit of, uh, 
I forget which episode it is, uh, uh, but I think there's like a DS9 episode that has a, a somewhat similar premise as well. That's not Trials and Tribulations, but I'll, I'll remember it later. Um, but but anyway, so that we were just like, oh, well, then who what if somebody just made contact, you know, like 100 years ago? And then, you know, I obviously brought up relics because I, I was like, well, they found a ship that was that was still in per perfectly working order back then uh, from back then that happened to have Scotty in it. Um, and and then then it started to be like, well, what if it was actually like somebody from from the Enterprise? Because we're in the Beta Quadrant, and they they obviously had a lot of stuff with the Romulans around then. And uh, so then we were, then I think that eventually this is over. The, I'm summarizing like an eight hour conversation. Uh, <laughs> uh, eventually, it got to the point where I, I was like, well, what if it was a red shirt? Because I, I was obsessed with red shirts, and I always felt like they got kind of a raw deal, and I was. It was always sort of like uh, like charmingly weird that that so many red shirts would die and then they then the Kirk would go ah and then just kind of move on with the episode <laughs> and so I was like well what if a red shirt survived and he was the the source of the cultural contamination so then we got onto the list of well who should it be and we were like well we could make someone up but that doesn't seem very sporting it's like well which red shirts are there that that had sort of a prominent role and survived and we realized there weren't very many at all um and uh one of them was garavik and i was like oh interesting from obsession and then we kind of revisited the episode of obsession and realized that his his story in that mirrors uh our our own character story of that sort of self-doubt and am i good enough to be starfleet you know we, i've messed up can i redeem myself and it became this perfect like perfect storm of like well now we have to do this episode and then, then, then nobody else wanted to touch it because it was so <laughs> like wheels within wheels layers upon layers and i was like i see it perfectly i'll just do it. <laughs> well our friend starfleet boy is in our live audience and uh he wanted you to know that you killed his husband but he loves the way that you killed him <laughs> is what he said but yeah he he was a big fan of uh garavik and that episode obsession uh, he also wants to know, like, does Garavik have a first name? Well, I think it's David. I think you see okay. that in a log somewhere, maybe. Uh, I, it, not in our show, but in in an obsession somewhere. It's a, someone calls him David. I think maybe not in the episode, and maybe that's why there's controversy over whether he has a first name. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but uh, but no, I mean, I I love Garavik too because you know I. I I I wanted to know what happened to him because by the end of the episode obsession, it seems like Kirk and he have like not only a history, but like a relationship. And you're like, you're ready for him to like sit down next to Chekhov and like join the bridge crew. And then he's just never seen again. And then, and then th he's never mentioned again. And I was like, well, surely we can give him and, and by proxy all red shirts a little bit more of fanfare and, and sort of like, something to really honor the, the role that they play in Starfleet. And that, that was kind of why we, we went with him, not only just because he was a red shirt, but because he was a, a, a great character that kind of disappeared due to the nature of episodic television. <laughs> well, very nice. And yeah, it is a deep cut. When I was watching the episode the first time, I was like, Garavik, Garavik. I know that was a name from the original series, but like, what episode? I did think it might have been Obsession, but I had to the, I had to double check Memory Alpha. And I'm normally like, very familiar with the original series as one of the star trek shows i know the most well it might be the one i know the most well because i've just seen it so many times 
but uh, yeah, so the the fact that I was like, okay, that's familiar, but I still have to like go double check. I think that's kind of cool. It was like, yeah, that's like a, a real good deep cut there. Yeah, and it's and we, I tried to structure the episode where you don't have to know that he was from sure. the US, but if you did, it would it would add another layer to it that would that was thematically appropriate. Yeah, and if he had been like an original character, it still would have it would have worked fine. Yeah, but people would have been so mad if I killed off one of the, uh, the bridge crew. You know, I suppose it works, you know, uh, in some ways it works particularly well if people don't know him because the nameless red shirt is the tradition that they come from. And so if you're yeah. tributing them, it, it, in a way it helps if you don't know who this particular one is. Sure, yeah. no, either either I, nameless or forgettable. Yeah, and that's what I, my thought was. Like, all the, you know, it's sort of, in a way, my own version of a Lower lower Decks episode, either TNG or the series, where it's like, it, the, you know, the, the rest of the crew have their own stories to tell. Well, I'd like to ask you a little, like, behind-the-scenes information on just kind of the the world here that the Enterprisians live on. Uh, they're able to, I guess, pass down all this information through like a limited amount of technology that they have and also just a, a tradition of, of oral storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what exactly are they doing when they're, you know, reviewing these these logs? They, they obviously have like video captured and some type of screen to display it on. So can you talk more about that? Yeah, so my in my imagination, 114 years ago, or however long the exact date would be, um, uh, they that Garavik, you know, went back to the shuttle on several trips each time, you know, exposing himself to a little bit of danger stuff, trying to salvage what he could from the wreck. Um, and then when it became clear the Enterprise wasn't coming back, and he didn't have the the tools to stop the danger of the of the. Uh, the Galileo, he made a choice to basically try to uh, try to teach these people the way of Starfleet, essentially gambling and hoping that they would they would progress enough that that, that they could eventually solve this problem that he knew that he would not sur- be around long enough to fix. And so I think he brought them a, some of this Starfleet tech and they were able to reverse engineer it uh, into creating some some like log screens and stuff so that you know, they can at least the important stuff, for instance, like how to operate a console and and stuff uh, that Garavik presumably walked them through, maybe with a, a half burned manual that that was, you know, there in the in the, the shuttle that he was able to salvage. And so that way, you know, once they had reverse engineered video capture and TV screens and stuff, then they were they would be able to pass that important information along uh, alongside what is probably a more important cultural thing as you say the oral storytelling and creating these sort of hero myths to pass along the the the, the spiritual information they felt was the most important to understanding uh, you know what came before at least that's my headcanon hmm. <laughs> it makes me think a little bit about the futurama star trek episode where a star trek had kind of become like a real i mean they're doing it for comedy and kind of satire but star trek in the future of futurama eventually becomes a religion yes written <laughs> but, by david goodman another fantastic oh, star yeah. trek writer who i think worked on the orville as well right or no he i'm thinking did. of someone else oh, no, oh, he okay did. he did he, no, did. he said i believe an executive producer on the orville as well okay yeah i forgot that he had written that episode of futurama but uh, but yeah this is kind of a similar idea but you know played more seriously but yeah it was a, it was a neat thing and just the the idea of like these people that you know, they put on like these plays and stuff and like do these recreations. It's acting. It, yeah, it's, it's a lot like <laughs> fan films. You know, like, you know, it's kind of like watching Star Trek Continues or something. But but Aaron, you have experience 
Dude, Aaron Harvey, I got to specify which Aaron I'm talking to. Oh. <laughs> Aaron, you you have experience, uh, I guess, you know, recreating a, a Starfleet yes. on, on stage like this with, with your improv shows. Yeah, we even had, um, and I don't remember what it is off the top of my head. We had like a one direction that everybody went if there was a show. You know, so oh. we all knew in advance which way to lean and go back and forth. So we were all coordinated no matter what was happening whenever there was some sort of like explosion or whatever we'd all wrench to the left or, or whatever i think it was left so yeah so that was amazing fun. yeah, I, yeah. I, I was you know i i've not never done anything quite like that but i i i had i did do uh high school theater and i was i was uh in a production of the music man if there's any theater oh, nice. majors or fans uh, but if you recall i was in the opening scene, there's the, I think it's called Rock Island Station, where there's a whole play where you're supposed to, or an opening scene to the play, where there, there are a bunch of people on a, a train, and you're supposed to mimic the, the train speeding up, and, and then suddenly you're on the rail, rails, and you basically have to be your own metronome. So I, I, whenever I saw Star Trek actors like trying to coordinate <laughs> those rocks, I, I, like, I felt that in my bones. Um, <laughs> And it, I was so glad that I got to work it your into, boons. Yes, into my boons. <laughs> yeah, Will Wheaton says that is the one universal thing that every Star Trek actor, no matter what show they were on, what ship they served on, he says he can go up to any Star Trek actor and talk about, yeah, like, you know, when you have to, like, shake and pretend that, like, the ship's getting hit and stuff. It's like, all mm -hmm. of them are like, yeah, yeah, I remember having to learn how to do that. They called it space acting on the a couple of the videos that I saw where they were interviewing them. Space acting. space acting it's funny when people sometimes you know get a little i'm gonna say too granular and looking for logic in trek sometimes i think uh they'll they'll be like you know why aren't there more seat belts why aren't there more precautions but i'm like do you really want to strip away this very fun classic narrative visual you know short there are still seat belts in tas and it still works <laughs> right yeah it's it's a, it's a visual shorthand it's exciting it's it's a tradition to somewhat in Trek, you know, like don't don't try and buzzkill that. That's good times. <laughs> yeah, it's and that's and I think that you know, for better or for worse, this episode is sort of a celebration of some of those really weird traditions that that are beloved because they are those sort of like outliers that the logic maybe tracks, but you just have to kind of go with it because like piece of the action is a crazy. <laughs> idea for a, a, an episode of television but it's beloved because you want to see spock with a tommy gun and yeah, yeah i totally <laughs> right. want to see that dr boons has come up uh i did uh there's a, it's it's later and it's you know it's the tail end of the episode or last third maybe but um i i liked that he got his moment of wisdom and you kind of recognize at that point if you had been sort of conceiving of these these people the enterpriseians as somewhat you know quote unquote primitive that oh that this guy has serious wisdom it's not just you know it's a not play that they he's that they they do understand technology that's we'll, we'll see more of that too and they're much more sophisticated than they seemed on the surface uh and so i i like how that kind of came out i felt like especially through him but it would, it would you know ultimately come out through a lot of the characters yeah, and I think that that was, you know, <clears throat> whether you want to talk about sort of communities and society and how we always have a tendency to judge the other as, oh, they don't know what they're talking about, they're wrong, or in fandom, I think it's hard to get away from that in this episode of like, there's always this assumption of like, oh, they're, they're, they're silly, they don't know truly what they're doing, they don't know what's, what, you know, how to be Starfleet the right way, 
And then in the end, I think it, I was just trying to strip it down to its bare essentials. Like Starfleet contains multitudes, you know, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. And it's that uh, multitude that makes us woven together into an incre incredibly strong tapestry and is our, in fact, I feel like Star Trek fandoms and Star Trek's greatest strength. And so that you're absolutely right that there was sort of supposed to be a little bit of like presumptions that then get completely dissolved and flipped on their head by the end of it when in fact those very people that you were judging are the ones that that you have to embrace and then you realize we're all part of the same cloth yeah the scene right. with, with dr boons is kind of what made the episode work for me i was a little you know kind of worried at the beginning like oh, it's, it's kind of like you know, making fun of the original series or whatever. But then, you know, that when he has that explanation to Dell where he's just like, yeah, like we know, we know we're not the real Starfleet or Starflight as he called it. Um, but the, the way that they explain that, you know, he's like, yeah, like we're smart, but yeah, we, we obviously know like the, the knowledge we have is incomplete. That's the word he uses like incomplete. Like, you know, we're, we're intelligent. We figure things out, but yeah, there's just a lot of stuff like, you know, we don't know or like that we don't have, but you know, we're just trying to do the best we can with these Starfleet morals and values that were taught to us. And it, I, I know people in real life who like, they kind of base their own morality off of, you know, the Star Trek values. And uh, that, it definitely, you know, reminded me of, of that. And, you know, the documentary Trekkies had the, the woman in Arkansas who I, don't, I, I assume pe people have seen like the documentary, but you know, there was like the woman on the jury in Arkansas that president Clinton either, had to show up to testify or was possibly going to show up to testify. And she was like going to court in her Starfleet uniform. And, you know, a lot of people like, you know, were making fun of her and gave her a hard time about that. But she was just saying like, but you know, th this is what I kind of base a lot of my life and my morality and stuff on. And she was involved in like real life organizations that tried to aspire to the, the values of, of Starfleet kind of did like the same thing, you know, like we know that we're not actually exploring the universe, but you know, we just want to dress up in these uniforms because it makes us feel like these, these heroes that do good and we want to do good like them. And, th and that's, I think that, that when you get down to it, the purpose of all sort of monomyths and storytelling is like, you know, you, you watch Marvel movies or, or, you know, read Beowulf, not because you know that you can defeat a dragon, but you know that you can you can emulate their bravery in the face of the unknown. You can stand up for what's right in the face of injustice, and you know it 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 becomes a metaphor for your life. It became a metaphor for my life, um, and you know there have been numerous occasions where it'd be easy just to kind of do the the Ferengi thing, <laughs> but instead I I decide to be you know try to be my better self and just try to put my best foot forward and realize that, you know, everybody kind of comes from their own organizing principles, their own background, their own culture. But we also, but we also share humanity. Um, and that that's honestly guided me through a lot of really difficult times. Um, and very much sort of like, you know, cause I, I get made fun of sometimes like, Oh, you're a nerd. Uh, but I'm like, sure. But, uh, I feel like I, I have a wider understanding of other people because of my willingness to embrace, uh, you know, science fiction, but also, um, you know, other, other fans and other people in ways I never would have thought before. And so that's kind of what this scene was grasping at is like, you never know what the other person's going mm -hmm. through. Um, but we all are trying our best with what we have. 
and I think that resonated with Dal and seems to resonate with a lot of a lot of people uh, who've seen the episode too. Yeah, and the way that you know he kind of is experiencing a form of imposter syndrome. You know, like, but what are we doing? You know, wearing these uniforms we didn't earn, flying around on the ship that doesn't really belong to us. Like trying to act like Starfleet. You know, we're as ridiculous as these people on this planet. But the episode was really cool in that it gave him opportunity to to come to terms with that while telling this fun story. You know what I liked is that um, the, I I get the impression uh, broadly that the Enterpriseians, had they never been visited by uh, Garavik, uh, would, would broadly still be a good and industrious and, you know, helpful people. But his, you know, the, the presence of Starfleet in their life gave them a sort of focus, gave them something, you know, that they romanticized and threw themselves into and got joy from and it inspired their art and all these things too. But uh, but I like that sense, you know, that um, they they kind of I, I think they they knew that it inspired them. They 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 gravitated to it, knowing that it was maybe subconsciously, uh, knowing it was only refining what you know the the decent people that they already were. I think that's kind of a neat th- neat way to see fandoms and things like that. Is that you can kind of choose them and use them to kind of galvanize you know what's already some maybe some essentially good things in yourself. Yeah. And I think a flip side of it is, you know, it's about faith in institutions and whether you feel like you belong in them. And, you know, they're like anything, there's some people that wholeheartedly believe in those institutions or organizations. And then there's other people that realize, like perhaps Dr. Booms, that they're only as strong as the people that comprise them. And, you know, they, they you have to protect their ideals in order for them to survive and thrive, whether it's you know, a fandom or democracy or faith or what have you, like there's, there are underpinnings to how we interact with each other. And I, 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 maybe it's too deep for a kid's show, but I wanted to try <laughs> to go there. No, I think, I think Star Trek has a tradition of having those, those deeper layers. And that's kind of the, the beauty, you know, for those of us who grew up with it, I think, yeah, when we're kids, it's like, oh, spaceships, oh, uh, da- dancing Orion women's, that's cool. But then, you know, as we get like a little older, we start, you know, you can peel back more. Aaron Harvey, I've heard you talk about this before, about like the the appeal that that Star Trek had to you, where that some other star franchises didn't, is that it does have that depth, and like the more you mature, yeah. like the the more deeper stuff you can you can pull out of it, or the more cerebral stuff you can pull out of it. it you grow with it, or it grows with you, mm. as opposed to growing out of something. Almost, it, it feels like mm-hmm. you know you're like okay, you're you're in thirties, you're forties, you're still finding something interesting, and like you know, and where other things you might have just. Like, oh, okay, it's still fun to watch, but it's not giving me any kind of deep, you know, emotional meaning or anything like that. But yeah. Sure. And you, and you can still like, even the animated series, which I know is you can. St- yeah. Exactly. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, I say even the animated series, which, you know, you watch as a little kid and you still get something out of it. But then when you watch it as an adult, like, you know, like we were saying with yesteryear, you're just like, wow, there's just there's a lot of real emotion there and just, you know, good storytelling. Yeah, and this show, I, I jokingly call it a kid's show, but from the beginning, we always just kind of wrote it as a show for everybody. It's If anything, it's a family show. It's a show that young people can watch with their parents or their grandparents, and everybody gets something out of it. That was always our goal. It was marketed as a kid's show, but we always were like, this is yeah. a... This is a show that's we in our mind is sort of what they call four quadrant, which I know is a huge Trek fun, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, young, old... Uh, men, women, everybody in between can then get something out of the show and hopefully watch it together. That was always our intent. It sounds like what Dorothy basically talked about for TAS. You know, she it's not a kiddie yeah. show. It's, you know, 
it's yeah, Star Trek we, in animation form. Yeah, and, and we had we had one of her scripts uh, signed, I think, by Nichelle Nichols actually um, in our offices as sort of a reminder of that. Oh, nice. Oh, cool. What what episode do you remember? Uh, I have a picture, but it's been a while since I look, I've been in the office. <laughs> so, <I'm, laughs> uh, but uh, I'll I'll tweet it later. Cool. Cool. Yeah, that was a that was a thing that was important to Gene too back when they were doing the animated series. Yeah, there was a a proposed animated series, I guess while TOS was still on the air, right? That would have been yep. a lot more childish and goofy and there would have been a Vulcan boy named Steve. Um <laughs> you know, I still think that, that was a placeholder like that. name and they wouldn't have used that. <laughs> but yeah. Okay. I mean it, I mean you can have an Andorian Steve. named Jennifer. It's fine. Well that's true. Well, yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> you mentioned uh, Beowulf a moment ago. Uh, was mm -hmm. that an inspiration for the, uh, you know, the face, the gallows con the, you know, the, the, the beast that, that has killed everyone, but these brave heroes will, will step out and, and try to be the ones to save this, this little village of people. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I, I'm sort of a classicist and that I, I do draw a lot of inspiration from, from, you know, sort of older works. Um, Beowulf is one that has sort of tattooed on my brain. <laughs> um, but I, I think that I'm in good company because I think Gene Roddenberry did that a lot as well. You know, so many of TOS's episodes, at least in some broad sense, were kind of like uh, either taking off of classic cultures or classic stories, you know. Um, I, you know, there's so many episodes of TOS where they have to venture into a mountain and confront what is the God being, and it's actually just a computer, you know? Mm. Uh, so that was very much kind of evoke, trying to evoke that, uh, venture into the unknown face, the face, have the meeting with the goddess, you know, face the, the dark beast and then come out of it having changed very hero's journey, Joseph Campbell type stuff. Well, I really liked how the, the gallows was teased during the, the play when, you know, they have like the, yeah, the, the, the fake glowing red eyes. Uh, and, you know, I see that I'm kind of thinking in the back of my head, like, OK, that'll be something they encounter later within the episode. And then when they go into the cavern and, and there are those two glowing red orbs, uh, you know, I, I, some somehow it's kind of like clicking in my brain, like, oh, those are like the proportions of a TOS shuttlecraft. And I, I was thinking like Gallos Galileo. And it was like that cool moment where like I figured out the reveal, like right when it happened in the episode, which. Uh, Dave, nice. you talk about it a lot. That's kind of like that's like the most satisfying way to experience. Sure. You get like the thrill there's, of figuring it out, but you didn't figure it out too early. There's a screenwriter, and I don't remember if it's um, William Goldman or whatever, but he, he does the let the audience figure out the two plus two is four thing, and they'll they'll always love you for it. Uh, I forget who. It, may, maybe Aaron, you might know. That know sounds like quote. a William Goldman quote, if I've ever heard one. So that sounds. It, like it that. seems it seems like him. Yeah, it's like. If you spell it out, then that's kind of lame. If you let the audience figure it out, it's cool. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised. I, I I heard a few people say, oh, I figured it out, but then I kind of forgot <laughs> about it. But I, I've been pleasantly surprised by so many people that didn't quite figure it out until just moments before, you know, she shines yeah. the light and says, not Gallows, Galileo. And, you know, I didn't figure uh, that, out the name, but the, the little lights, I'm like, nacelles, that feels very yeah. much like, like nacelles. I'm like, but then mm -hmm. I kind of forgot about it. So, yeah, it's, uh, um, and I, I, 
there aren't that many shots of of uh, you know the shuttle being used in Star Trek, uh, and it's it seems to change a little bit of how they light it and stuff between. So I, I I've, what I wound up doing was I found a model that someone had had created of like a if if the you know everything was working properly this is what it would look like and they had the tuna mm -hmm. cells lighting up and i sent that to our directors like just do this but have it through a haze and then andrew schmidt who i worked with on tales of arcadia um uh, he's a phenomenal director and he instantly knew what i was talking about and you know anytime he had a question about anything he always like just go directly to me and say what do you think and so we kind of conspired a lot of trying to get this i think he even was the one who i think it was him it's been a, a little while where he found he he said like oh i was looking up messed up shuttlecraft and i found the original galileo was found in a junkyard and it looked like this and, the oh, door yeah. was off. and then it's like what if what if we did that and i was like perfect and i even I saw was literally looking at those pictures that. yesterday that's yeah it's been restored and is i want to say they it's either in the like the tour or it's somewhere that you can get to it. They yeah, actually, I, they had it down here in Texas for a while in Houston at the NASA Space Center. But I think now it's going up to Ticonderoga. Mm. Oh, okay. The, yeah, Star Trek set tours okay. up there. Yeah. I, I might be wrong on that, so don't don't quote me on that. But I, I think I think it has gone somewhere else. It has a, a new home now, or is about to have one. Am I correct? It's kind of left as a as a mystery exactly how it is the Galileo got uh, got got out there or. Uh, you know, we know it was on a mission, but uh... yeah, I think part of the uh, the fun of this sort of mystery was like you you have clues, but they're they're kind of through a game of telephone. You know, there mm -hmm. was a mission, but then all you have are these sort of like you know, wisp the facts become whispers, become sort of legends, you know, become mythology, and so you can kind of it's almost like an anthropological study to try to figure out what the Ur myth was referring to. Um, you know, I, I certainly have a whole headcanon of, you know, that, that Garavik was on some sort of test flight or just routine mission that he volunteered to take solo to just to do some routine thing. But then a classic Trek anomaly sends his ship veering off course. You know, it gets lost in an ionic storm of some sort that the, the, the sensors lose track of him. The ship crashes. He tries to steer it away from the from the village, you know, no, trying to pervert preserve the prime directive but lands in this dilithium cave that he didn't know was there it creates this big subspatial distortion the enterprise flies by does the scans they can find no signs of it uh, all they find nothing but dust and debris as as uh, spock would probably say um and unfortunately they just have to this the uh, maybe they even kind of beam down outside the area couldn't you know their sensors couldn't get a, a lock and they're like the the, the 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 shuttle's been lost and so has garavik uh, a heartbroken kirk has to move on but uh in honor of of his what who was going to be sitting next to Chekhov, he was about to get his promotion uh, he decides to uh, to rename the Galileo uh, instead of just having the, the Galileo. He's like, no, that that's retired. It's now the Gal Galileo too, in honor of my best friend, David Garavik. Um, <laughs> and and then uh, from there on out is the the story that that Kirk and crew didn't know happened, which is that uh, Garavik survived and then was in this sort of conundrum where. You know, if he truly adhered to the prime directive, these people that healed him and helped him would be doomed to die from this poisoning of the land. Um, and so he made the choice to sort of bend the rules and truly 
uh, James T. Kirk fashion, the Apple style, um, and and uh, find a way to try to save them by and giving them everything that he could before he succumbed to his his uh, wounds. So that's my backstory. I don't know if that ruins it, the mystique of it, but no, that, that's cool. That's cool. I like that. I like that. At least you like put the thought into that to like make sure it could work, even if it doesn't necessarily happen like that. Like we don't we don't know it's still like a little mysterious. It's like well, yeah, there's... it's its own lost episode. Yeah, yeah. I think you at least get the important stuff, which is that something happened where he was lost. The, the Enterprise had to move on, as they do with red shirts regularly. But also, mm. they even do it. Uh, I think in Galileo Seven, after they scan and they can't find them there's a there's a period where they're like we have to leave like you know scott scotty and and spock are gone <laughs> and they're and that's why uh you know spock does that last ditch kind of effort to launch the ship up and shoot out a flare basically to let them know they're still alive because that's just starfleet protocol at that time you can only spend so much time looking for the lost we need to pitch that story to idw as a, as a like it'd be like a little one shot comic. Aaron oh Harvey, you can do the cover. Aaron well, uh, Walke, man. you can write. I it. have here's some background information. Dayton Ward did pitch that. They, like wanted to because when that the he first read the script in 2019, I think or something. Yeah. He said that he wanted to do that backstory, and it just oh. sort of went into like a hole. Oh well, maybe nobody, now that it's out, they're not gonna. Yeah, exactly. I think back yeah. then it's like well, nobody's gonna know what this is for. Yeah, right. that would be so cool. <laughs> yeah, what that con- well, and well, I'll, Dave, I'll Dave you manage more. a comic store, so yeah. you'll you'll be the one selling it. Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do any. I'll, no, I'll I'll just uh, talk about it online. I'll just uh, set up the uh, the the text track podcast slash yeah. stream where we talk about it. So yeah, we will have something I, to do. I would love to write that one shot. Actually, uh, I'll have to hit up Dayton and see if, if yeah. maybe we can resuscitate that because I feel like now that it's out and the fan reaction yeah. has been what it is, I I think there's a good case to be made. I do want to cover them. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yeah. Well, Yuri and I were talking earlier too, or how it was possibly like chrono- chronologically, it kind of fits in the TAS era because it's after you know just and also we don't have any mention of Chekhov. Yeah, no Chekhov so, reference, and that's, that's when he true. he was gone out of TAS. So yeah. Well, there was also yeah. There was so <laughs> there were so many things. I uh, the play originally was like two pages longer. <laughs> like, <laughs> just basically this whole episode i love his dramatic dying (laughs) yes oh man these are my dying words the the falling (laughs) through space uh on the uh over the star field was there's a just a ton of of course great visuals uh throughout the whole play in sun fell from the stars bearing (laughs) gifts of knowledge jacob finds like who's this guy Like, like somehow he knew with the other people, the other people, which is like, yeah, that is like a reaction to the red shirts. But, but speaking of great visuals, I I got a big thrill when I saw the TOS sets recreated Mm. on the Proto Star Bridge. Yeah, Uh, was was that your idea? Uh, I mean, of course it was. Yes, (laughs) I don't. All his episodes are required to have a TOS bridge recreation. Yeah, yeah, I'll stop putting Enterprise's bridges in my script someday, but mm. not now. Yeah, because you, you've given us the uh, the Enterprise D bridge. You gave us the original Connie bridge again. Yeah, so, I have a problem. I admit it. Yeah, I wonder, um. I wonder what's next. 
This also made uh, me think of the the VR game Star Trek Bridge Crew because you can yeah. you can change that you can make it be like the you know JJ Kelvin Bridge where you can make it be the original series you can make it be Next Generation but like you can just kind of switch to which, whichever one you want to play on so it's kind of like that. Yeah, well, moments like this are some of my favorite moments in storytelling where you have sort of three problems in need of a solution and suddenly you find that perfect answer that is that actually is not only the correct answer but enhances the moment makes it feel like it was supposed to be that all along you know and one of them was you know we i i really wanted to do sort of a what was the name of that tng episode who watches the watchers is mm -hmm, that yeah. mm -hmm. where, where he where picard brings you know the yes the the contaminated people up to the bridge to explain how ships work these people already know how ships work and they know what starfleet is and everything and seem to maybe know how to fly a ship based on dal's clocking them you know pushing the buttons and stuff um but the 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 issue was is like how would they know how to fly a 24th century ship you know even if they're like sort of the jesse pinkman uh to garavik's um uh you know walter white where where they they know how to at least by rote memorization how what buttons to push to do the to do the maneuvers um you know that's not what the protostar looks like and then but then there's also then i was like well what if it was sort of a holographic display of some sort and then we're like, what if we recreated the actual bridge on, on the Enterprise? And they're like, can it do that? And I said, yes, because the hollow emitters are throughout the ship post-Voyager. Oh, yeah. yep. yeah. We have that for you know, holographic beings now. And so that, like, it would, it, I would arguably, this is probably straining what the hollow emitters can do uh, <laughs> outside the holodeck. But No, this is the protostar. It's got probably better... <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah, that's too fun of an idea to not yeah, do it. Yeah. And, it, 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 you know, it gives the, these characters like the big payoff, like they get the opportunity to go, you know, they've been cosplayers all their life and now you get to do it for real. I kind of, uh, when I was watching that, I think that was one of the scenes where I kind of teared up a little bit watching it. It was yeah. a really, really emotional moment to, to give them their shot. Yeah, every yeah. Star Trek fan wants to do that. We all want to beam up to a ship and, you know, sit down at the controls and do Starfleet stuff. And I think what th this moment for me is what made the whole episode work with when we were breaking it. Because I was like, it's not just about like, I feel better about myself. It's like, you now have to put that faith into practice and put your belief in other people to the test. Um, and in this sort of life or death moment, like in a true Kirk fashion, he has to make it an out of the box call and just say, well, it's either we try something or we lose our friends and he he decides that to give them that opportunity just in that in that moment and to a surprise they're even better than he expected and it turned and like basically him overcoming that sort of accidental prejudice is the very thing that unlocks you know all of their salvation and i'm like that's that's star trek to me and then uh, and then i think when as that was kind of lying in i was like how do we drive that forward and i was like what if we finally hear garavik's log mm. and then you find out oh, that yeah. that, and that was sort of, and you get to hear in his own voices you know you've you've unlocked the final key in this in this temple now you get to see the prize of of what really happened and how he came to the same conclusion and you know well done noble adventurer you know that 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 gets me every time yeah no i think it's just like the combination of things like hearing that voiceover which was fred 
Tadasaur. Yeah, he's Shaq's on Lord. Yeah, and I, and, I worked with Fred, and I had worked with Fred very extensively because uh, he's the voice of Arg uh, in, uh, in Troll Hunters and Tales of Arcadia. And so he, which is one of the main characters on that show. Um, and so I, when I, when I, when they were like, well, oh, maybe Fred could do it. I said, oh, he could absolutely do it. He's one of the greatest voice actors alive and working today. Um, did he do Dr. Boons as well? He did. He all, he's also the voice of the Hulk and a bunch of other stuff. Like he's, he has that gravitas of, and he's like, just a genuinely good actor. You know, he does, he has a very baritone voice, so he tends to get cast in those roles, but he's a, he has a lot of nuance that he really brings to all of his performances. Yeah, it was a really good, you know, combination of of his performance doing the voice, also the dialogue that you wrote for him, the visuals of the TOS bridge, the uh, climax of of the story. You know, like rescuing the kids that are on the shuttle. These characters that have been lifelong Starfleet wannabes finally getting to, to prove they can be the real deal. And then Dahl, you know, coming to terms with his imposter syndrome issues, just all of that happening at the same time. And then Nami's score was particularly good at this moment. But, you know, these last few episodes, I've noticed like the score has just really been knocking it out of the park. So kudos to her yeah. and the work she's yeah. doing. We're, we're extremely lucky that we got Nami before she became what she is now. And yeah, she, she scores Marvel, Marvel movies now. She, <laughs> she scored Thor. Yeah, well, Michael Giacchino basically said, hey, you know, if you're looking for a composer, you should you should use Nami. I've worked with her. She's fantastic. She, I've sort of her mentor in the Hollywood scene. And we're like, OK, Michael Giacchino, if you say so. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and yeah, she was fantastic. She's been wonderful. Awesome. You know, I think the combination of all the different storytelling elements and and just the the like the trekness of everything makes it also not feel like a wallow in nostalgia. It's nostalgic, but it's not it isn't doesn't feel it feels like it's earned. It doesn't feel cheap, I guess is what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, I, like, I think it was because if you just won. heard this without knowing the context, it could be like, oh, they're doing the, the TOS episode, okay, you know, whatever. Right. But it it's not. Yeah, I think from the beginning, we whenever we have any sort of uh, you know venture into something that is very nostalgic or or legacy, mm -hmm. we don't want it just to be for you know the the excitement in your brain of like I recognize that we want it to be we want to evoke the meaning behind it, why it's nostalgic, yeah. why it it became important to people, and what it what it means to our heroes, and it needs to have a, a, an impact to their journey as well. And so I'm, I'm glad as, as complex and <laughs> as this episode was, we were able to like really kind of say, this is why people like this jet age, uh, yeah. Star Trek show with flimsy cardboard sets. Uh, you know, it's not about <laughs> what you're seeing on the screen. It's about what it represents. And so that's, I, I'm glad that people kind of picked up on that. You're talking about, um, uh, the uh, the trekness of it that uh, Dowell and his crew deciding to do Starfleet stuff without the uh, prize dangled at the end of being able to join Starfleet, knowing that's not really possible right now, maybe never. Uh, that is also a very trekky thing, and another another one of those uh, like the end of the. I guess it both began with that in the episode, and then it ends with some very Starfleet philosophy. So it was a, you know a, a more earned, I, I think. Uh, earned trekkiness i guess yeah. I'd say. yeah i and i think that's kind of been the journey for our heroes and what this sort of period of their journey of the of this season is like 
it's not about just wanting to get to Starfleet because you'll have a better life. It's about you know embodying what it, what it it is, so that way when you arrive, you you belong, you know. And so them sort of realizing that that they can do that anywhere here, even though they still want to go where where they you know feel like they they could be. Um, it's it, it's a fun little kind of undercutting and subversion of that that sort of there's no place home, like home kind of uh, vibe. I thought there was no harder hand signal to do than the Vulcan salute, but I have found one. It is the, the wrong reverse. Vulcan salute. I can't make my fingers do it. Uh, uh, I think my brother used to do this trick where he would uh, move between them, and so I practiced it a lot as a kid, oh. and I can I can kind of do it. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite good at it, but I'm a freak, so I get it. For anybody who's listening uh, to this on audio, we're all on screen trying to make our hands go between the right and wrong ones and looking like a bunch of doofuses. Yeah, I, I, really, I have to think way too hard. I, I can do both of them, but I really have to like strain my brain to think about it. There you go. Yeah, that's cool. Um, the, Incidentally, yeah. I would buy a, a T-shirt uh, that had like that symbol on it, and uh, you know, one of the one of the many uh, memorable uh, uh, broken phrases from the episode or sure. uh, misremembered. There might be a, a T-shirt coming towards Aaron's way for the design that I did on the poster. <laughs> oh, cool! I would be interested. The episode ends with that you know, montage that kind of wraps everything up and, you know, shows that uh, the, the the rules on second contact are, are a little fuzzy, but, you know, we can kind of help them out a little bit, give them some medical supplies, teach them the right Vulcan hand drives, like give them some new stories to add to their, <laughs> their plays that they perform. The thing that I, I see a lot of people talk about is like, oh, like the rules about second contact are a bit fuzzy. That must be a, a lower decks reference. But I was thinking like, no, like, this episode was probably written like before before that show was a thing. So I don't know. Can you shed some light on that? So um, it was written. I think Lower Decks was in production on their first season, uh, but I don't think they had released anything yet to the public. So we knew that they were doing Second Contact stuff, mm. but it was very early days. Um, and but you know I also just in general the rules of second contact are fuzzy so sure <laughs> so, yeah. I was, so I was I I uh, I think when I wrote that line I was like I was like I have to acknowledge that they are in kind of a weird space that probably Starfleet hasn't necessarily been in before <laughs> where that where they have some people that they know about star starships they have a subspace communicator which is one of the things that allows you to make prime uh, first contact. Lots of people say, oh, they have to have warp drive. No, it, it can actually be a subspace communication as well. The point is you're at a point where you can start to make contact with alien races. So they're sort of in this, like, you know, on a scale of, uh, on on the, what do you call that? The, uh, the Zephram Cochran scale of first contacts. Okay. They're somewhere like teetering over 50%. <laughs> so... So I was like, you know what? They're not even Starfleet uh, in the traditional sense themselves. So I, at the very least, I think they could probably help clean up the mess that Starfleet made on the planet, which, <laughs> which is pretty common. And right, they went right. down, and they went down, assuming that they were that they were warp capable or at least capable of communicating with other alien races. So the cat's out of the bag there. It's not like they have a men, men, men in black like memory eraser gun or something. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, Doctor Crusher had that ability. She uh, she used well, that very liberally. Yeah, 
but I don't think I, I don't think Zero's uh, medical skills in this episode are quite up to snuff to erase people's minds. <laughs> well, he could just show himself, and then everybody's memory would be gone. Yeah. Well, that yeah. that worked okay for Vaunacott, but I don't know if we want to try that on any Enterprisians. Speaking of Zero, though, when the show first started, I I thought they were going to be the navigator, you know, being a Medusa or like the 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 helmsman or something. But you know, in a lot of recent episodes, they've been doing more medical stuff. So I I am assuming now that that's going to be their their path is towards like being the the Starfleet doctor of Prodigy. Well, yeah. So we kind of uh, modeled because we have such a small crew. We kind of modeled this on the the old Star Trek, um, you know, trope of a lot of characters doing double duty. You know, it's why 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 do you have the person who's in charge of of you know just steering the ship going on away missions? Well, because you want to see them on the planet, but but also. <laughs> You know, in, in Voyager, for instance, like they, they were they were down medical personnel so that mm-hmm. Tom Paris was both the helmsman or the, you know, the op, the, the uh, con officer. And and he also worked in sickbay with the doctor. So the, our, our thought was like, I think it's more than forgivable and understandable on a crew of five to have them yeah. kind of have specialties, <laughs> but also do other stuff on the ship as well. And that's been my theory from the very first episode that murph will eventually be the security or tactical officer because he was the one when they couldn't find the pew 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 button he was the one who found it it certainly helps that murph is indestructible he's he's a red shirt that can't die (laughs) but i guess the the final shot of the episode was rock talk looking at the cocooned murph so another another big tease to get us to come back next week and and see uh, what happens to Murph. On I, I know a lot of people online have a lot of a uh, lot of curiosity and, and and some fear, a little bit of fear. You know what's going to happen to cute Murph? They're they're on Murph Watch. I get it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I, I, I'll say this. Um, you know, Murph is indestructible. We've established that. Uh, Murph goes through changes. We all go through changes. But come on, Murph's always going to be cute. Let's be real. <laughs> Good to know. Right there, it sort of looks like it's, it's got like a 1990s toy vibe for some reason, like that gradation and like feels like it's a plastic thing or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's, well, I mean, I, we keep saying they need to make Murph Gak. It's Nickelodeon. Like, yeah. It's Nickelodeon. yeah. Gak. I, mean, I haven't thought of that since like 1994, but yeah. Like... <laughs> Murph's particular color gradations and uh, have always been uh, particularly visually appealing. So yeah, yeah, slap that on some gack. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this episode with us, Aaron. Hope to have you back on the show at some other point in the future, maybe if we can swing that. Uh, we always end our shows with this uh, section we call the Gord Eggs, where I talk about the Easter eggs, in jokes, and continuity connections I found within the episode that I thought were worth bringing up. Uh, the, sure. the first one, I guess, the the title of the episode itself uh, is a Shakespeare reference. Yeah, it's from As You Like It. Uh, All the world's the stage. The men and women merely players. They have their entrances and their exits. And then something, something, seven stages of man. <laughs> I always like hearing the slightly longer versions because Shakespeare, when he's uh, shortened, uh, you can lose a lot of the meaning. But yeah, it's a... <laughs> Yeah, and that was definitely referring when you know it as we kind of talked through it. Like obviously, that 
comings and goings and the legacies you leave behind were very much part of this. So, nice. correct. Sorry, I didn't mean it. I, I'm slowing down your memento of the Gorneggs. I'm so sorry. No, 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 you're good. We we want your input. I guarantee you everyone listening to this would rather hear from you than, than hear from me. So. <laughs> I always do real fathery during these things anyway. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm used to it. Then... <laughs> uh, but of the original series, I guess, visuals that we saw recreated, uh, which, you know, we we haven't really gotten since, I guess, 2005 with In a Mirror Darkly on Star Trek Enterprise, where they went to a 2260s Constitution class starship. Uh, but yeah, here we have like not only the visuals of the bridge of the enterprise but also the phasers communicators and uniforms are all seen in action throughout the episodes so that was cool to see those props and, and playmates is making these phasers again so a bit of a bit of a commercial for that licensed product <laughs> and the thing that like i i really like made me a little nervous the first time i was watching it but then by the time i saw the end of the episode and realized what you were doing is like oh okay that actually was like a great addition to have in there but the uh the martial arts that they're practicing were Kirk Fu, which uh, Dayton Ward has the the Kirk Fu book of, also available now. So. Yes, uh, I, that was my insistence. I was like, you ha they have to be. I, I wrote it into the episode and I was like, don't forget the Kirk Fu. And the director's like, I know, I know. Yeah, what I love about the, these uh, uniforms is the like the women have a cut in and men have like a cut out like a, a it's interesting, little little knob on the end, and then of course all the women have braids as opposed to them actually meaning command of any yeah. kind. <laughs> yeah, the story behind that was just, I think, the idea that uh, you know Garavik was going over the essentials, and so he never quite got into the the the, the, the hierarchical structure, and that's why they they all wear green, and only Insan wears red. You know. It's a little bit like uh, there's a, a concept in Persian rug making called the Persian flaw, and it's oh, yeah. the, and they introduce a flaw into into their um, their manufacturing of rugs because the, you know only God can make perfection. So there's sort of like you know we can only wear green, only Ensign, you know, or the, the Savior can wear red. Hmm. And I gotta say, I appreciate the mention of the duotronic comms relay. Uh, that Jankum Pog, uh, when he's talking about the 23rd century Class F shuttle, it says that has duotronic comms, which would have been a big distinction because he's used to isolinear technology. So those people that obsess over the Star Trek uh, techno babble, it's like, there you go, we got duotronics. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to give props to our Trek advisor David Mack because uh, we we had a we had a, we went back and forth on like all the fun stuff that we wanted down in there. At one point, I tried to get them to give them food cubes that they'd be eating. Ah, oh but, yeah, like the the Plato food. Yeah, yeah, but then but then they'd open up this whole conversation of like, would they have replicators on the on the shuttlecraft? I was like, mm. fine, no food cubes. They could have just <laughs> had like a little like a a form like you make sushi or something. They just <laughs> put their food into cubes for no reason. <laughs> yeah. And uh, people that might be unfamiliar with the character Ensign Garavik, he is from the original series season two episode Obsession. So go check that out, streaming on Paramount Plus in the United States. I don't know about other countries, but but yeah, so that's a good one. I, I don't think about Obsession a lot, but you know, whenever I'm rewatching the original series and come to that episode, I was like, oh, this is better than I remembered it being. But yeah, for whatever reason, it's not one that I I think of very often, and, uh, except for when I'm watching it. 
Well, there's it's... nice character work in it, I think. Because mm. you, you see Kirk get to be vulnerable and you, you get to dip into his past a little bit. And, you know, you don't see him kind of, you know, kind of take an interest in the lower deckers very often. So I think it's very memorable for that reason. Yeah, and the episode title has a double meaning if you're friends with Starfleet Boy, because as we're, <laughs> we're pointing out in the comments in the live audience, uh, the, uh, Garavik is Starfleet Boy's obsession. <laughs> You can't quite see it, but I actually naturally grow uh, the pointy sideburns. Pointy sideburns. Oh, that is so cool! That's awesome. Devotion to the uh, theme. Yeah. <laughs> you were when right. I had hair. The, I had the, the same thing. <laughs> you were right at the top of the show when you said it's like you were born to be a Star Trek writer. It's like that, <laughs> that is yeah. destiny. Well, that is very cool. Well, uh, we would love to hear what people out there in the internet world think about this episode so please uh comment if you're on youtube or you can reply to my tweets or you can hit us up on the text trek facebook page or in the text trek discord server we'd love to hear some feedback because we like to share audience responses on these episodes uh dave actually has some subspace transmissions we received from uh last week last week's episode so dave if you would like to uh share some of that Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, responding to our uh, comments on uh, episode 12, Let Sleeping Borgs Lie. I want to start out with uh, one from one of our long timers, Cake is Eternal, who on YouTube said it was great to see Dave back. So uh, just uh, <laughs> that was I had been out for a couple months. Uh, it was great to get back interacting with people again and back on the show. So that thank you very much, Cake. Uh, I really appreciated it. Um, but uh, moving on to the actual episode. Uh, let's see, we had, um, you know, they were going up against one of Trek's biggest threats, the Borg. And so uh, let's see what uh, Commander Meg on Twitter said. It was pretty spooky. I loved it. Peter Hutchinson said, chills, just chills. Um, Phantom Star Crew uh, kind of went on to say, realizing that the new kids had no idea what the Borg were was neat. Any of us watching would have turned and warped away. They got to experience a first encounter with the Borg and slowly realized they were a horror villain in a sci-fi show, just like we did back in the day. Uh, I absolutely agree there. Um, there was a little bit of dissent. Um, uh, a view from the peanut gallery said, uh, honestly, thought it was a weak episode, but it also felt like it was setting up uh, for later things. I'm pretty sure the events in this story are going to lead to some great stuff later in the season. Wanted to mention that... Uh, Amy uh, I'm, I'm Hoff and Raconteur Guide uh, both gave shout-outs to Zero. That, specifically for the episode, uh, uh, let's see, Raconteur Guide said, Zero in particular shown with their best energy. Several people mentioned that the show was uh, doing a really good job balancing writing for a young audience and for the longtime Trekkies. Um, but uh, opinions no one cares about uh, over on YouTube said, uh, I attempted to get my kids to watch this show. Didn't work out very well. I think I'll have to try again. <laughs> and uh, opinions no one cares about also mentioned of uh, had a wry observation about Dr. Noam on the Dauntless <laughs> and said, uh, I don't think all the animated Star Trek doctors need to be grumpy. <laughs> um but yeah, by and large, it seems like people were very happy with the well, episode. He's a Tellerite show, so definitely so. Yeah, yeah, tell, yeah Tellerites like, need to be grumpy. And as you as you pointed out in the, I think in our com chat last, it was week, complimenting uh, her. It's a it's a Tellerite uh, cranky compliment. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
but yeah, everybody seemed to really enjoy the spooky vibe of that episode and and seeing um, seeing the Borg make their make their presence known still out there. Well, uh, next week we'll be talking about the episode Crossroads. Uh, Aaron, I know you you have to be careful what you say, but is is there anything? It can just be like a single word, but is there anything that you would like to uh, tease people with uh, going into uh, next week's episode Crossroads? Uh, Let's just say that uh, there will be um, an explosive confrontation. Oh. Okay, very enticing. I can't, help, I can't help but remember the uh, the audio track for Wrath of Khan called, I believe, Kirk's Explosive Reply when he uh, <laughs> responds to Khan. I always remembered that. Yeah. Well, I'll be uh, looking forward to that one. Yeah, it's, I think for the people that are excited to see, you know, um, Admiral Janeway storyline advance, you'll be very happy. Yeah, we, we didn't get a ton of Dauntless this week. Sounds like we're going to get more next week than we had this week. You're going to get a lot. Okay. Flesh Janeway, as Dave calls her. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not to be confused with hollow Janeway. <laughs> I'm sure that's going to catch on. I'm sure that's yeah, going to uh-huh. catch on. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I'm looking forward to that one. And until next week, as always, live logs and proper, y'all. Live logs and proper. Listen to the Text Trek podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or at text-trek.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash text-trek. And follow Fathery on Twitter at TXTrek. Please support us by liking our videos and subscribing to our channel on YouTube. Thank you and take care.